my heart is so full, but it's also breaking. As you all know, a dear friend of, of mine and many of you, Josh Underhay and his son died in a dreadful accident on Good Friday. And Josh has been a, a companion on my political journey for many years. And his absence this evening leaves an emptiness that just cannot be filled. Besides being a, a beloved teacher and a passionate political advocate and a devoted father and so many other things, Josh was also a brilliant musician. And that's actually how Josh and I got to know each other was, was through music, through our shared love of music. He, like me, Josh played the trumpet. He played it much better than I ever did or will. But Josh and I were both trumpet players. And I don't think Josh ever played a boring trumpet solo. I don't actually... I don't, I don't think boring was in Josh's vocabulary. <laughs> in, in any of the languages that he spoke so fluently and so effortlessly. But exciting was, and energetic, and daring, and humorous, and sparkling, and sensitive, and creative, and beautiful. All of those words, and so many more, describe the man that we lost just a few days ago. And loving. Was there ever a more loving father? And all of our hearts break that young Oliver will never get to shine his light in this world. A light I have no doubt that would have been pure and bright, nurtured lovingly as it was by Carrie and Josh. Josh's trumpet solo was far too short. The music was muted by a dreadful suddenness. But Josh played so well. He played so beautifully, so alluringly. And we all heard what Josh had to say. Live well together and include everybody as you build community. Live on this earth gently. And above all else, care about the children and their future. And Josh's joyful and inspiring song will echo across this island for many years to come. So I've been thinking a lot about music over the last few days. And many of you, like me, are probably feeling conflicted or confused or perhaps even guilty as we celebrate and mourn at the same time. But let's remember that sorrow is a single note on the scale of human emotion. You cannot create music with a single note. You need to add and blend and harmonize more notes. There is often beauty in a complex arrangement of musical notes. And there is hidden grace in complex emotions. So I hope tonight that we can be courageous and kind to each other as we open ourselves to experiencing many different notes tonight not just sorrow, but joy and gratitude and longing, but mostly hope.
So welcome back to the Off the Ledge series of the Off Script podcast. My name is Mark Coffin. I'm Jesse Hitchcock. So we're going to get into the election results uh, and kind of dissecting them and, and, and walking through them in a minute. But first off, just wanted to acknowledge that this was a really tough election for, for Prince Edward Island. So the words you heard on the beginning of the show today were some of what uh, Green Party leader Peter Bevan Baker had to say about the passing of his candidate. Josh and uh, and his son and uh, yeah I can imagine it must be an incredibly hard time for everybody uh, in that party to be both celebrating a big jump ahead but also a major major loss. As many of you probably have heard by now, Prince Edward Island has a new legislature. The results poured in over the course of Tuesday night, and uh, there are twelve progressive conservative MLAs six liberal MLAs, and eight green MLAs. Obviously, this is not the green majority that uh, many in the national media sort of um, drummed this election up to be, but it is still an unprecedented result. Prince Edward Island has never had anything but uh, a majority government um, by any of our modern standards uh, and understandings of the, the term. And of course, the Greens now have more seats, as many seats in the PEI legislature as they have in every other legislature across the country. Um, so big, big changes in the PEI legislature. Yeah, I think it's been really interesting to see how the national media coverage has focused on PEI and the kind of um, predictions that they've been making. I know there was a lot of talk about a green majority government, and we talked about this obviously uh, throughout the podcast. But you know, it was exciting to see the polls where they were. But I think for most of us on PEI, when we actually sat down and started doing the seat by seat kind of guesses based on what we know about the communities and the island, it became apparent that you know it would take something really kind of crazy to flip enough districts. And at the end of the day, it's just about um, getting to 14. So, uh, you know, I think that a lot of us on PEI kind of expected this sort of outcome where there was going to be a way more green seats, but to get that majority would have been would have been a bigger ask. I do wonder, though, and I've seen a few people asking the question about this around because PEI has such high voter turnout already. Um, I'm surprised this didn't come up in our earlier shows, but um, because there's such high turnout, it would you would think that the ground game or the ability of parties to get voters out to the polls would matter significantly less when the turnout is already so high. So there is this question of like, well, if the you know 40, 35 to forty percent of people were promising to vote for the green or telling the pollsters they were going to vote for the Greens um, up until the last week of the campaign what was the reason for their not necessarily, you know, the popular vote for the Greens was only 30%. So it's, I, I'm just curious what the reason is. Are, are the Greens just less, less likely? Are they the, the highest proportion of their supporters when they're polled, the highest proportion of those who didn't vote in the last election or don't tend to vote? Um, it's, I'm sure, something that the party itself will be asking questions about and trying to get to the root of. Yeah. And I think too, obviously like the margin of error and the polling, like Fair. when we were looking at those polls early on, they were say, polling, you know, mid thirties and that's not unforeseen, um, 5% margin of error, a couple percent margin of error. So mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I think like, you know, for me, this is what I expected. Um, but it has, it's been definitely interesting, like watching the conversation on the national yeah. stage versus, versus at home. And it's really exciting to see, um, national interest in PI politics. I think there should always be, but 
<laughs> it's a big ask for yeah. a country of <laughs> yeah. 38 million people now. Yeah. Um, one of the things they've been saying on, uh, you know, I saw Aaron Wary uh, from the CBC, uh, who's a reporter in Ottawa, writing about on Twitter, just the idea of like, oh, maybe there's going to be a, a red-green coalition. Um, you don't think that's very likely? Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure. I know that in the interview with Global, Peter said all options are on the table. Um, but to me, knowing what I know about the parties in Prince Edward Island and what we've seen from the PCs um, in this election, obviously they just got a new leader. So, you know, we've seen kind of less from them in terms of what what their plan will be or their values. But um, it seems like there's kind of a natural alignment between a lot of what the PCs were saying in this campaign and what the Greens have been uh, working towards for the last four years. So hmm. uh, to, to me, that seems more likely. Um, but I, yeah, I, I've been interested to see all the national coverage that's sort of this sort of, you know, taken aback by the suggestion that there's going to be a PC green coalition because their frame of reference is, you know, the Ford government, the Kenny government, um, yeah. you know, all this of these kind of, this is definitely not that like the PCs, um, in PEI, you know, definitely have a, that P like they're progressive, yeah. um, you know, purportedly. So, I mean, yeah, I would be, su- I would be surprised, you know, if, if those comparisons were fair, but that could just be uh, wishful thinking for mm-hmm. me, for sure. I suspect this is a moment where the Greens and, and Peter Bevan Baker specifically is probably doing a lot more of the thinking around kind of backroom politicking. He's, he has to, um, than he would have done probably at any point in his uh, leadership as party leader um, since, since taking the job because, you know, there's a lot potentially at stake um, by either choosing to support this this party or not. And I think uh, a thought that just popped into my head um, as I was kind of prepping for, for this uh, on the drive-in, uh, I was thinking of, you know, there, there's two dynamics that I think are interest- are going to be interesting to see play out. One is, I think, the dynamic between um, the Greens and the PCs when something gets um, heated or controversial or when there's a deep disagreement, um, the carbon tax being one of the issues that we saw in the debates that they, they disagree on, seems like that would be a pretty important policy piece for Peter to, or for the Peter and the Greens to know um, they have a government that supports. Um, but obviously, Dennis King wasn't a big fan of it in the debates. The other dynamic I'm interested in seeing playing out is, so that's like, you know, right now a friendly relationship that could get rocky. Um, but then the other dynamic I'm interested in seeing play out is like, what's Dennis King going to, how is he going to present at the Council of the Federation meetings, meetings with other premiers um, that are of the sort of like far right variety? Like I get the impression he's not there. He's that's not his natural like resting place. Um, but I also don't get necessarily the impression that like he's going to go to those tables and, you know, be the voice of progressive values necessarily. Not that we ever really see that anyway. So that'll be something that won't get shown to voters, uh, until someone writes a book about it in, you know, a decade or so. But I think there are interesting dynamics to watch, particularly because of this kind of reputation he has, um, that I have no reason to believe isn't hard earned of being sort of a collaborative, you know, congenial communicator. Well, and this is what's been so interesting to me is that, you know, we see all of the kind of more right-wing conservatives across Canada and federally 
quick to jump on this kind of blue wave messaging. Um, you know, they're like, Oh, another one bites the (laughs) dust. Like here's another conservative province. And I mean, I understand that from a narrative perspective is that that works for them. Um, but it's interesting to see whether or not the PEI PCs are also interested in, in pursuing that narrative or letting that narrative happen to them. Uh, or, or, you know, are they decidedly, you know, going to come out as something different. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, similarly, I'm sure they're having those conversations because I think that there are people in that, in that party and MLAs in that party who definitely fall to the right of Denny. Right. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how that kind of pans out. And I'm also interested in, you know, the conversations that are going to be had before we come to any sort of, um, you know, functional, like this is how we're moving forward. Like, are any of these things going to be bargaining chips? Like you mentioned with the carbon tax or, yeah, um, uh, yeah, that'll be interesting to see. Yeah. I mean, just on one of the earlier points you made there around, you know, do, will they distinguish themselves, uh, as a, you know, something different than a traditional conservative party. I think it's interesting because, you know, you saw all the leaders come out from the other conservative parties and congratulate Dennis King as if, you know, he's one of our own. But I think probably what's true in PEI, what our provinces have in common, Nova Scotia and PEI, is that like in electing a PC government, which it looks like we may be uh, doing in, in our next election, we may end up with a more progressive government, a slightly further, probably more to the center than to the anywhere on the left, but like it'll be a more progressive government based on, you know, what those parties have been saying um, in opposition around the campaign trail. Um, or at least if it's not more progressive, it's in, it's hard to discriminate which one is more progressive. Like they're, they're very close ideologically. Really? On, I guess the latter piece he said there, the, maybe let's take that uh, opportunity to jump into sort of what the, uh, I guess, a, the next steps are for, the new legislature, but also be how the media has been portraying it. So what the headlines basically said and what the stories have been been saying uh, about uh, this election is that Prince Edward Island uh, has elected a minority government, a green opposition, um, and that Dennis King, uh, the leader of the PC party, is the premier designate. Um, and in his speech on election night, he called, at first he called himself premier designate, and then by the end of the speech, he was calling himself premier elect. Um, and there are a lot of people out there who like anytime those words are used, uh, that it sort of like triggers what many see as kind of like a sort of pedantism that's like, you know, why are you being such a nitpicker? Like clearly we elected this party and, you know, this is what the news is telling us, you know, stop, you know, trying to poke holes in the story. Um, and, and people do that when it's a majority government election, like people will say, we shouldn't call them premier designate, which I don't really care about that much because that's going to be, that's the person that's going to become the premier. But in this election, you know, the popular votes were, you know, 30% for the greens, uh, 29% for the liberals and 36 and a half percent for the PCs. And the PCs just ended up, you know, getting more seats. It happens to be that the seat, the party with the most popular vote also has the most seats, but by no means does anybody have a majority. Uh, And in the legislature, nothing really happens unless a majority of MLAs support it, including, you know, whether or not someone gets to become or gets to stay the premier. So I guess just maybe a quick, like procedural explanation for folks that aren't as familiar with the Westminster system. So when there's, whenever there's an election, the first person that has the opportunity to meet the new legislature and see if they can obtain or retain their confidence is the current premier. 
In this case, probably not going to happen because he himself lost his seat, although that alone is not enough to stop someone from being premier. But also the party just doesn't have much power in the legislature. So presumably someone else will be premier. Usually that's the person with the most seats. In this case, that's the leader of the PC party. But that only they only get to win a confidence vote if a majority of MLA support it. So presumably they would need at least one other party to support them. And the media has been reporting it as, like I said, PC minority, green opposition, and Dennis King is the premier designate, or in his words, the premier elect. Um, my beef with all of this is just that when we report on things like this or when people in you know that write headlines write this this way, and my sense is that most journalists understand it. It's the headline writers and the people that control the scroll on election night or the graphics or the people more likely who are directing the people who control the graphics are making these decisions. But it just takes all of what I just explained away from voters in the sense that like for anybody who doesn't read past the headlines, they just think that we have a PC minority government and that's what voters chose. But if you look at the numbers, like voters... They just all chose different things. There's no clear decision. And it's up to the legislature to make that decision about what's going to happen next. Um, and without mentioning it, it's kind of like a, a lost on a night that most people are, you know, watching the news channel for a lot longer than they usually would. There's an opportunity to do that little civics lesson. But instead, we just sort of, you know, finish the story and, you know, it gets posted. Yeah, it's really interesting too. Like, I mean, I know that's, this is all like sort of a bit nuanced, but I think that it's interesting in this case in particular, because there are so many different outcomes that we could see. Like it's, it is a bit presumptuous to assume that the legislature will select, um, you know, the PC leader as the premier and supported by the green party or not. Um, they have 12 seats. They only need two more seats. There's so many different right. things that could happen. Um, you know, someone could cross the floor. Um, there's a by-election coming up. So I think like it, a recount. it is, yeah, a recount. There's definitely, it is a bit presumptuous in this particular case, but technically all of the time you're right. Yeah. And I guess the other thing I'll just throw in there, because I know there's probably somebody listening who's like, you left out a bit, um, that it's, it's kind of unclear, um, uh, once Wade McLaughlin resigns, how, um, the Lieutenant governor would re- proceed in terms of, uh, whether he would uh, require any kind of advice from McLaughlin before he left on who to choose as the, the next premier or whether he would require the next premier or the prospective next premier to come to him with uh, a sense of, uh, I, you know, some sort of evidence that he can gain the confidence of, of the House. I don't totally understand that. And a lot of it is just difficult to understand because there's not, like, we don't have a rule book that this is all done in convention and a lot of the time, the convention isn't properly documented. Um, but there seems to be a school of thought that believes that if Premier McLaughlin goes and says, I think you should choose Dennis King as, you know, giving him the first chance to get the confidence of the house, there's good reason to believe that that's what he would do. But there's also no reason to believe that Premier McLaughlin has to give that advice. Uh, again, in a bit sort of murky territory here in terms of not knowing everything about um, how all this works, but um, enough smart people are out there raising questions about the the, the wisdom of, of writing these headlines in advance. Well, and we did see in New Brunswick, you know, where the previous leader, previous premier did go and ask for the confidence of the house. And, mm-hmm. and the same in BC. Yeah. And it didn't happen. So um, yeah, there's definitely still a lot that could, that could happen uh, in the legislature. 
So I did, I mentioned in last week's podcast that I'd be working on my spreadsheet and uh, I haven't completed it yet, but I've just done um, some basic calculations around sort of like what are, what were the closest ridings? Um, and it looks like the closest ridings were actually the ones won by Green Party members. Um, so riding number 13 or district number 13, the Green won by 78 votes, uh, beating out the Liberal as a runner up. In district number 23, the Green won by 75 votes, beating out the progressive conservative candidate there. Um, so one of the things I like to just do to point out whenever there's close election results to point out how whatever we might call a wave is is really just a, kind of a figment of the uh, electoral system that we have, um, you know, with in the cases of just those two districts alone, if the sum total of voters, so like 153 voters decided to vote for other candidates, then the Greens would be knocked down by two seats. Um, similarly, if you look at like the two closest PC ridings, District 8, or ridings where PC candidates won, District 8 and District 26 from the looks of things, you've got, um, you know, 104 voters in District 8 that would have uh, if they switched their vote, sent the district back to the liberals and 159 voters in district 27, sorry, 26, uh, that would have sent the district also back to the liberals. So what looks like this sort of like wave, like it wouldn't be, wouldn't have taken many voters to turn this election to a place where like the liberal and NPCs, liberals have much more power, the PCs have much less and greens are, you know, having made a little less of a breakthrough just by virtue of the fact that that's one of the features of the electoral system we have. And another interesting thing too, is like, we always see these kind of pie charts, usually like fair vote Canada does them, um, after an election to demonstrate, you know, the popular vote versus the seat distribution. So, you know, like 60% of people voted for this party and they only got this many seats like that, that kind of comparison. And mm -hmm. when you look at that pie chart for this election, <laughs> it's pretty much like it, equal like it, it they look yeah. similar the liberals you know should have a few more seats like if this was if this election was under a pr system the liberals mm. would be allocated some top-ups right. <laughs> but i think the pcs were equal um they kind of like got exactly what they they should have despite the results of the referendum which you know we'll talk about later in this episode um it's kind of the most proportional legislature we've seen in a long time yeah, so I was just doing the math while you were talking there, and it looks like if it were perfectly proportional, not using the Dehaunt formula, I'm using the Mac calculator, uh, but if it were perfectly proportional, it would be 7.9 seats for the Greens, 7.67 for the Liberals, 0.7 for the NDP, and 9 for the PCs. So uh, the Greens actually have 8, the Liberals actually have 6, and the PCs have 12. So um, yeah, you're right. Pretty pretty close to what a proportional result would be. And, and it's still not fair. Yeah, exactly. From the perspective of, you know, there are other downsides of the PR system or of the first past the post system, like voters in certain regions not having the right or the representation they were looking for. Yeah. And the regional distribution was really interesting too. Like the Greens obviously did very well in the urban centers, Charlottetown, Summerside, um, PCs in the central and eastern rural parts of the island. Uh, liberals again in the West further, further past Summerside. So um, it's interesting, like if the PCs do um, form government supported by the Greens, uh, you know, the PCs don't have any, they won't have any cabinet ministers from an urban center. 
they won't have any MLAs from an urban center. Hmm. So that's really interesting too, to think about. Yeah, for sure. Were there any districts that surprised you in how they turned out? Yeah, there was three, there, there, there were quite a few, but there, there are three that I'll mention. Um, district 13, you mentioned as one of the close, um, districts, 70 some votes. Um, but that district was held by former cabinet minister, Jordan Brown and, uh, the green candidate, Ole actually ended up winning, which surprised me for sure. I thought that um, that was going to be one of the Charlottetown seats that the Liberals held. Uh, mm. And I think, you know, um, Jordan, you know, was a minister. He held various portfolios. He was on the Special Committee for Democratic Renewal, um, kind of high profile person in PEI politics. So uh, that was that was interesting. But I did see um, a photo of him at, you know, the green event afterwards congratulating people. And so I think that speaks volumes to his character for sure. Um, the next one that I found surprising, obviously, um, district eight, which was premier McLaughlin's seat that he did not win. Um, and that was Mm. won by conservative. So that was surprising, obviously, because he was the premier. Um, but in some ways this is something that I always find a little bit frustrating about elections where, the power changes hands because often we see the leader resign right after the election. Mm -hmm. Um, Then we have to go to a by-election and then all (laughs) those voters who just voted, you know, it's sort of like, so in some ways, I guess maybe it's um, a good outcome. Um, And then a really interesting one for me was district 14. So this is another kind of uh, outer Charlottetown um, district. And it was won by Gord McNeely, who is the liberal. But for most of the night, the green candidate was leading that one, which was quite surprising. Um, and there was one poll not reporting. Hmm. And what's interesting is that Gord McNeely ran in the last provincial election as a new Democrat. And he in that same district, and he was winning in the whole night. And then there was one poll that didn't report. And when that poll came in, it was the advanced poll and it totally flipped liberal and Gord Mm. lost. And then this election, Gord's running as a liberal and most of the night he's down. And then that one last poll comes in and it flipped the district from the greens to the liberals. So that was some sort of like crazy, um, parallel kind of universe from four years ago. But, um, yeah, Gord, Gord definitely, even though he's with a different party, um, yeah, it, it'll be good to see him in the legislature, in my opinion. Yeah, and it was interesting watching. It seemed like some of the districts were reporting their advance polls earlier, and then some of them were reporting them last or in the middle. And it certainly, well, it made it hard to make any kind of like sort of on the spot assessment of like how things would go based on advance polling or not, because it, you know, once there was multiple districts reporting, it just became like, oh, well, we don't, we can't really say that like oh, advanced voters are favoring this party versus that one. Um, but it certainly makes for interesting uh, coverage and, and closeness on uh, election nights, which is like, I always think about when we're watching election results, like the, the drama of it all really is just, all of it is around the pace of counting ballots and in no other nothing else on television generates that much drama 
for what is essentially like literally pushing paper yeah, exactly. and figuring out <laughs> who has the most votes. And we create so much drama around it. The power of television. Yeah, it's amazing, though. Okay, should we talk about the referendum? Yes, we should talk about the referendum. Uh, this is another one where it's like it's interesting to see the framing of the results from the media. And I understand this one because like the yes side did not get a majority. Um, but when you actually look at the the way the referendum rules were written, it says in order for a side to win, either yes or no, the threshold must be passed, which means that 50% of voters need to support um, that side. And it has to happen in 60% of districts across the province. And I think by that measure, neither the yes side nor the no side has won. I'm curious about why they would have worded it that way and not just worded it from the perspective of like to get MMP, you need to meet this threshold versus like, because when you read it that way, it almost suggests like a continuing debate on electoral reform because neither side was able to meet the threshold. Yeah. I mean, based on the way that it's worded, it, it means that nothing from this referendum was binding. Um, because nobody met the, the legal threshold outlined, like, which is so interesting. It's almost like the least clear outcome right. we could have, we could have asked for. Um, but I guess it is interesting in that, um, MMP did win in the majority of districts, um, but not a super majority of districts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was like 60% or something, not 63 um, right. What was the PR action team saying that like the, if this were first past the post election, we'd have MMP. Yeah. Which people didn't love that yeah, that's <laughs> comparison. But it, is, <laughs> it is a bit funny. Um, but I think, you know, uh, Dennis has already given an interview saying that he'd like to continue conversations on electoral reform in the legislature. Um, yeah. I mean, all this shows is that, you know, opinions are divided. I don't... <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I think like something that I find interesting is the point that you made early on is like we set this high precedent for change. Like when you actually Mm. step back and think about it, you know, 50% of people voting to change the system is a lot. Like that's, you know, that's a lot of people and and 50% of people voting to just keep things the same. You know, that's almost like a smaller sort of, victory in a way like yeah yeah. well and it's like i think i mean the i i always hate to look into legislation and and, you know you hear people say when they're looking at like the u.s constitution like oh the wisdom of the framers um but i think in this case there actually is whether intended or not some wisdom in that uh crafting of that section that dictates what the threshold for change is because i think whether intended or not the implication is that to go forward, we need some consensus or we like we like it almost is implied that like if there is no clear outcome from this, then the conversation continues or like our work to to find a system that works for the island isn't isn't done yet. And I think having it looks like uh, that's something that uh, Dennis King understands or at least is willing to go along with uh, and continue this conversation. He almost sounds like somebody who really wants to change the voting system. Um, you know, I haven't seen many other leaders, uh, you know, including the NDP in Alberta or the NDP in Ontario when they had their referendum or the prime minister in Canada, anybody who 
go through a process that doesn't produce a clear outcome uh, or, or, or path forward. Like usually they're just like, we're done. Uh, so it's nice to see that like, okay, the referendum was unclear and there is at least two party leaders who presumably want to continue that conversation. Yeah. And two who may be working collaboratively together issue by issue to make our legislative decisions. Yeah. So, that <laughs> you, might be interesting. You got your legislature. I know I did, didn't I? Yeah. Because <laughs> you never said who you wanted to be premier, did you? You just said. I just said I wanted a minority where they work together issue by issue. The other thing that has been interesting to hear from, I think, more the party leaders uh, and the pundits than the media on this is all of the suggestions about what Islanders have expressed in this you know, vote. And I think I've even heard somebody use the language of you know, the electorate in their wisdom, um, which again, I don't like, I think is a silly thing to do because it presumes that like everybody got together, had a discussion over the course of these weeks, and then collectively decided to give... Prince Edward Island, this legislature that is, you know, where power is shared amongst three parties where any two can get things done. Um, And I think, you know, there's this suggestion that like Islanders, you know, I think Dennis King said something along the lines of Islanders have asked us to, you know, work together. That's what they're saying with these election results, which I think like the only thing you can say when you get results like this are that Islanders all wanted different people to represent them in the legislature. Like they were more or less evenly divided between three parties. We thought, you know, with each of those parties doing a little bit better than the other. Um, but to read, you know, this notion that like we want anything specifically from what voters have said with that like single check mark they got on their ballots, it's very difficult to do. Although all that said, it is nice to see them interpreting it as we have to work together because Islanders Even if they're of the opinion that like Islanders told us to work together, that that's a good thing, even if it's not necessarily well founded. Um, One would hope that Islanders want their governments to work together, but it's difficult to read that in from the raw election results. Yeah, I sort of think of it as like they're interpreting it in a way that sort of respects the diverse values of Islanders. Like they're looking at the results and saying, okay, a third of Islanders wanted liberals to be in government, a third wanted Greens, a third wanted PCs. So to respect that diversity of opinion, mm-hmm. we're going to do our best to work together. Um, it's not necessarily to say like Islanders wanted this legislative outcome and, you know, we're going to respect that. It's just sort of recognizing that that the values are not as binary as they once were. Yeah. I mean, it's also interesting, like to compare to, you know, an American election result where like, you know, it's consistently, you see a lot of like 50, 50 ish election results and their takeaway is like, oh, it's a divided nation. And then yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like, exactly. uh, the electorate wants us to really work together. So we're going to just be really collaborative. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, it's, it's a tone thing too. Right. And that's something that we've seen kind of emerge, um, since 2015 when Peter was first elected to the legislature as kind of a more um, kind of as kind of a more obvious uh, dichotomy in, in how the tone was with a lot of people in the legislative assembly in comparison to Peter. So, and I think, you know, we were talking about how that's been kind of stark and how that might be a decided move by a lot of people. So it's definitely interesting to see it emerge after Mm -hmm. the election. As well. Yeah. 
and like, I'm not complaining about the the way they're handling it. Um, it's more just like people can call me out and being a pedant for this, but like, I think it, it is, it does take a, a bit of liberal interpretation, small L liberal interpretation of the results to like conclude that, well, this is what Islanders want, even though it may very well be what Islanders want. Um, the other thing I, I think is going to be interesting to watch is like, you know, we've touched on this already, but um, yes, for sure, there uh, are, it seems like there's a, a willingness to work together amongst the, I guess, the two party leaders who remain, Peter Biffin Baker and Dennis King. Um, but they're also, they're not the same party, right? Like the, we mentioned the idea, the, the question of the carbon tax, they're in different places on that. Um, it is a green party that like was founded out of the concern that the way of life on planet earth is not sustainable and, you know, that we need drastic action in order to avert catastrophic climate change, which also is not something, you know, you hear Dennis King talking about with any kind of, um, I would argue kind of like, not necessarily sincerity, but like an understanding of like the existential threat of the issue, um, and I think that there's going to be something at some point where they disagree. And I think the true test of civility is like not really how you behave um, when you are aware that the voters are looking for a more civil kind of politics. I think the, the true test is like, well, how does it get you through a deep conflict? And how does it get you through what seems like an impasse? Um, what's it going to look like there? And I think we may not, as the the, the viewers or the observers of this, get to see what that looks like that may happen behind the scenes. Um, but boy, would I like to be a fly on the wall? Yeah. I, th- I think that it's going to be really interesting and obvious, the obvious outcome, if they can't, you know, if they do come to this crossroads and they can't find a way to resolve it together, uh, then, you know, we go to the polls mm-hmm. and that's, that's, that's a harsh kind of outcome, <laughs> you know, one that shouldn't be taken lightly. So I know I've heard a lot of commentary saying, Oh, this will probably last for two years and then we'll be at the polls. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I don't know. It'd be interesting. Maybe someone who's listening can tell us, but I don't know off the top of my head, how, you know, how many minority governments have lasted the full, the full term of the, the four yeah. years. Well, and I mean, I think the other thing too is that, like, I, and I don't think there are many. I think most are like well under four years, and usually somewhere between two and three years um, for the productive ones. But the, I've been reading this uh, author uh, called his name is M. Scott Peck, and his uh, he's a psychiatrist, but he's done a lot of work in community building uh, and civil society organizations, and he kind of outlines how most organizations have what he calls pseudo community or, or like pseudo civility where like they're kind to one another and they work together and like they um, can do that because they've never been through conflict together. I think that's probably close to um, where PEI is right now, or at least PEI politics uh, and the politics of the legislature. But what he also goes on to say is that like to, to get beyond pseudo community or pseudo civility, like it's, it comes when you've gone through conflict and come out on the other side stronger for it. And I think we just don't have any examples of that uh, in in sort of cross-partisan ways in Canadian politics, or at least n- very few or none that we know of as, you know, sort of the watchers, the citizens. Um, but I think there is an opportunity here for like, for that to, 
to show itself because I think it, never before has there been, you know, two leaders that are starting out with this kind of um, lack of animosity, you know, looking at BC, it, when Premier Horgan and Andrew Weaver, the leader of the Green Party there formed uh, an agreement to support one another that came after kind of a lot of just like years in op- opposition to one another or just sort of competing for the same votes. Um, and it was sort of, uh, it looked like a decision of political necessity versus like any kind of like, w- we've been through it together, we're going to keep going through it together. But it feels like there might be the opportunity for a, a more evolved form of civility uh, with with this pair of leaders and pair of parties. And I think that actually leads into sort of our, our next point on the by-election mm. um, in a weird way because Josh Underhay, who is uh, the Green candidate who passed away before the election, that was something that was so important to him was this concept of like civility in politics. And I know he was really excited about um the opportunity to work collaboratively with other parties. And he was running against um, Sarah Stewart Clark, who was the PC candidate in that district. And they, they, you know, even knocked on doors together, they would cross um, paths together and, you know, both be in for a coffee at the same time. And he was always really adamant that this can be different and, you know, had a great deal of respect for her and her to him. And I think that that's the exact type of thing that would make him really proud. Yeah, she wrote a beautiful piece too on uh, on Facebook. I'll link to it if it's public in our, our show notes. Yeah, it was really really well written. So yeah, I guess I guess that by election is that the last thing we're going to talk about. That's the last thing. So it looks like we don't know when that will be yet, but within three months, presumably we'll get called once there is a confirmed premier who can advise the lieutenant governor on when that by election should happen. Um. And yeah, I guess as it looks, it doesn't look like it's going to necessarily change the balance of power in the legislature, but you can imagine that with a legislature this close, it will be a competitive one. Although maybe not. I don't know. It's PEI. Yeah, I don't know what to expect either, but um, I think it'll be a really respectful and and, um, nice campaign based on what we saw in the week before the election. And like you said, you know, it's going to, it's not going to probably swing the balance of power unless something uh, else happens in the meantime in the legislature, but um, it will definitely obviously give someone else another seat and another voice. And yeah, we'll definitely be watching to see, to see how that one turns out. Well, that's it for this episode of the Off the Ledge series of the Offscript podcast. Thanks for listening. Uh, as all goes as we kind of expect it to go, if we end up getting a PC minority government uh, on PEI, we probably won't be back with this particular series of podcasts, but definitely stay subscribed to the channel uh, and uh, you'll be the first to know about when we have new episodes uh, from this podcast available. We're still sort of figuring out what we're doing with our, our podcasts and how frequently we can afford to um, continue producing them here at Springtide. But we very much appreciate you joining us for this journey on the PEI election and hope that you'll stick around and and pay attention to the work that we're doing at Springtide in the future. If you like this work uh, and you want to see more of it, then definitely consider contributing to this work. Uh, You can go to springtide.ngo slash support um, and make a small contribution or perhaps consider becoming a monthly donor. All of that goes towards uh, helping us produce uh, resources and programs for people that are interested in better politics and want to play a part in it. 
I've had a really good time on this podcast. Obviously, PEI politics are one of my favorite things to talk about, and I love that province. But I hope it's also been a lesson for people who are listening in how interesting local politics can be. Um, even if you know there isn't a podcast dedicated to it, I hope that everybody will start continue. one. <laughs> start one, <laughs> or I hope that you'll at least continue to just follow. You know the different provincial elections, the federal. Um, political scene as well. I mean, this stuff is really important and um, we're always here to talk. I think one thing I'm taking away from this whole experience is that like, as tempting as it is to watch the dumpster fire south of the border, real change happens. uh, The stuff we can affect often happens really close to home. So uh, very inspiring and lots of lessons to take away from this particular election. All right. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Bye for now.